Welcome to Jewish Women Talk About Midlife. Hi, I'm Devara Krasniansky, and I've been coaching women for a long time in all areas of life, and more recently in midlife. Midlife is an exciting time, but it's also sometimes confusing. And so I invite experts to come here to my podcast to talk about different aspects of midlife. You can join in our conversation on our Facebook group, Jewish Women Talk About Midlife. This episode, I spoke with Malki Michaela Rosenfeld about stress and weight. She shared some new ways of framing the stress-weight conundrum. We also spoke about working with our circadian rhythm, meals and mini-meals, and sugar cravings and the importance of protein in our diet. Throughout the talk, Malki shared some easy fit changes that could impact our eating habits and weight. Enjoy this episode. Malki, I'm so excited about this topic. As we got started in this Facebook group and I'm talking to different women in midlife, two big words come up all the time, weight, and stress. And so we're bringing this together in the same conversation. So I'm really excited about that. So let's get to it. Firstly, Malki, I love your energy on your videos and that's kind of where I got you. Oh, good. So <laughs> oh, talk good. about what you do and your videos. I do. Okay, get started. Okay. So what I do is really, I am a health coach. Okay, that's what I, that's what I bill myself as. Um, I do have a medical license in Oriental Medicine from the United States, which is a medical license and requires a lot of Western science. Um, and I like Western medicine. I'm very Eastern and Western. I prefer to be the bridge. I always have been. Um, and, it, you know, part of it's genetic. My dad was, now everybody knows what public health is, right? Nobody really knew what public health was before COVID. My dad was in public health for 45 years um, and nobody understood what I was talking about when they asked what he did. So um, we like East and West. We really like to do whatever it takes to help people be well and um, maintain their humanity. So I'm a health coach. Um, what I do is I create protocols for my patients, regimens, protocols, and I work with their medical doctors. Um, sometimes I have to, often I have to guide my patients as to how to be in a relationship with their medical doctors to get clarity about their expectations and therefore the outcomes with their Western medical professionals. Um, and, and, you know, it seems to work pretty, pretty well. You can ask some more specific questions if, if you want to go for it. I hope we'll get to it in the conversation. So this okay. topic, so you do a lot about different aspects of health and wellness and your videos as far as your exercises and your yoga so that's a little part that we didn't yet discuss and we'll weave it into the conversation afterwards and then just mention your your facebook group your facebook page your is social just just throw that out first so it's i'm be wellness 613 and my my facebook page is just under malki michaela rosenfeld um i do go by all three names people usually pick one malki michaela also, Michelle, you'll hear, but that's it. That's me. Right now, the Kosher Yoga Facebook page um, is going to be out there, but the website's going live on the 1st of March. So I haven't put anything there because I don't want people, I don't like going to websites that have incomplete content. I just want to see the show when it starts kind of thing. So I'm out there. I'm on there. The truth is, if anyone's listening, I'm really not on social media that much. Um, my virtual assistants are. I prefer to have a little less technological time in my life and it's gotten very technological whether I wanted it to or not. So um, so I do health, I do wellness. 
And, but I'm a very tactless, pragmatic, is this going to be sustainable? And the most important aspect of sustainability is, can someone really do this? Will it take away their social life? Will it take away their humanity? Will it, will it drive them nuts as a woman to take on more when we're already really taking on a lot? Um, so I do a very practical approach. And, um, and I think it's as an Eastern medicine professional, when I was in the United States, I, I practiced Chinese medicine, which was acupuncture and herbs for a long time. That was my private practice. I was in network with all the health insurance companies. Um, and thankfully I was, my practice was about 15 minutes from Johns Hopkins. So you have to keep the bar kind of high. Um, and I was often the one that sent my patients to their Western doctors and said, what you really need is this. And they have this for you or this diagnostic. And, and then we'll decide about your treatment protocols. Um, and I think that's probably one of my hallmark things that I do that's, I don't know if it's unique, but it's necessary. So how does stress impact weight? So I'm going to talk about weight first. Um, I'm very say strict, but I change the language pretty fast. Most of my patients are not losing to, looking to lose weight. They're looking to lose fat and changing that as the vocabulary and the goal I think is a much more efficient way to go about it. Women and people in general, I mean, 50% of the clientele are residents, the residents in eating disorders clinics these days are actually men. So I don't want to take this away from men, okay? Because they really are struggling with this, but we will do whatever we can to make a number on a scale happen. Um, I haven't had a scale for a really long time. I, I just get rid of them for most of my patients. We want body composition changes. We usually want less body fat and either more or the same muscle. And if that's the goal, it changes the paradigm, it changes the protocol, it changes the resilience. And I think it's the first place to start is to redefine what we're really trying to lose when it comes to weight. And then if it's really fat, how do we track it? Are we really losing fat? Are we really losing muscle? Which is something we never wanna do. So with stress, I would say that the biggest connection, there's two main biochemical connections that will always come up, male, female, anybody. When we are in a state of fight or flight or stress, whatever you wanna call it, there's two mechanisms that, or two hormones, excuse me, that can block fat metabolism. When we say hormones, it's not like, oh, that hormone always blocks fat, okay? It means when it is secreted and it is accessible to our system by way of the bloodstream, it will tell the body, stop burning fat, hang on to it. Okay. So the fat metabolism mechanism shuts down. Insulin and cortisol. Those are the two ones that tell our bodies to store fat. Um, it's a kindness that God did for us that we wouldn't completely, totally fall apart during times of war or stress. Um, we have to hold on to our resources and fat calorically speaking, which is probably the only time we talk about calories, but as far as the unit of energy, fat has more than two times the amount of energy for the exact same weight or amount or unit. So our body needs to be able to go into storage. So many people's lifestyles and especially middle age or, and I'm talking about, I'm about 36 onward. There is a very big change that happens. It's not perimenopause, but it's the beginning of shifting of hormones in, in a woman's life. Um, but 
for most of us, we're walking around like it's like fight or flight, you know, that switch that gets turned on and we're supposed to turn it down and have the relaxation response. It's like, I usually tell my patients like a light switch and someone like shoved a popsicle stick in it and left it in the on position. So many people are walking around with constant surges of cortisol. So at certain times when they need it, they're actually exhausted, but most of the time they're just kind of like tired, wired, a little bit anxious and steadily gaining body fat. So that is where the stress complex meets the body fat conundrum. So in short of our understanding is that when we're stressed, we release the cortisol and that tells the body to hold on to the fat. Correct. And we release cortisol for good things also. In the morning when you open your eyes and the sun hits your pupils, cortisol begins increasing in the bloodstream for activity, for wonder. It's, it's a wonderful thing. It's just when it's constant, it's supposed to come down at certain times of the day. Um, the other, and then beyond that, there's other stress mechanisms and there's other hormones, but I'm, I'm going to leave it at those two because they're the most common that we're dealing with, which is too much insulin because people are just eating all day. Snacking was such a terrible thing that happened. Like snacks never should have gotten into the world of weight management or dieting. Um, so people are walking around with a constant amount of insulin in their bloodstream blocking fat and constant stress which over a 24-hour period will certainly have cortisol in an elevated state far beyond the amount of time that's helpful. So if people have stress, whether some people have added stress, they create their own stress, but some people really have life stress. So what can they do for their stress and or their cortisol, which seems to be the same thing? Now, I want to say this. In the last, I would say, five years, for sure, my protocols have, have changed quite a bit. Um, in the last 10 years, certainly they have. What we would have done 10 years ago is different than what we need to do now. And I do want to say that is a very important thing to understand, that as our demographic and time has changed, our body chemistry hasn't. Okay, so I'm going to give tips. I'll tell you some things that people can do. But we have to realize is when you say some people have life stress, if you have a smartphone, you have life stress. I have my phone. And I don't know if you know this, but I'll just turn every time you every time you click it and the light goes on, it stimulates cortisol. It also gives you dopamine. Like you can pick whatever you want at this point. We all have it's like, you know, like a rabbit or they say a frog, you can put it in boiling water will die. But if you put it in lukewarm water and bring it up, it just sits there and it dies. This is the human race trying to contend with what has happened in terms of stress causing situations. So five years ago, people, you know, like my ringer has been off for 12 or 13 years, but you know, the dinging and the binging and the constant. So people, what people can do is mitigate just some of the small cumulative stresses. We're meant to deal with stress. We are meant to have life events, you know, and we know this. If you want to make a plant grow, you trim it. That's what we, that's what, you know, Hashem's doing with us all the time. Um, but the first place to start is to mitigate the additional cumulative stresses. And I like to give the metaphor of a freezer, a non-self-defrosting freezer. Pesach is coming. We all know this, okay? If you have to defrost that freezer before you fill it with your Pesach food, it is like, whoa, it's a job, okay? But if you chip away at the sides of the freezer a little bit over 
year, you don't create as big of a project. And you also, inside of that space, have more space. So if you can think about your mind and you think about the life stresses, the first place to start is just not to expect that life won't be a big storm sometimes. You know, not to expect that you might be making you know, like two chasanas and have this kid and hudmajing or whatever. It's to know that in between a little less time on the phone or a little, you know, like some reasonable things that fit in with people's family practices and don't, don't underestimate how much our ability to respond to stress is, um, I don't want to say heightened, but we respond to stress in those big life events better. We don't have little events all day. And so, that I think is the first place to start. It's like wiring down a little, not always looking on the phone, not always feeling like we have antennas popping out of our head, not always being in conversation. It's such a project. Like I went to Virginia Tech. I went to tech school, like not that it was tech, you know, it was like nerd tech school, the first place in the United States that financially covered computers. Um, I've been trying the whole time to not get swept up and it is a project and I do believe it is the most worthy project, you know, to have the times that we commit to, like we commit to Shabbos, we're committing to Abdullah. So committing to the time at the end of the day, by which if you know, you're going to sleep at 11, 10 o'clock gadgets off power down and to simulate the life that we used to live even 15 years ago vastly different vastly different so i think it's a very easy place to start but if you want to get the most bang for your buck at least do that and most people don't even realize how effective that small change might be so i, I just, usually tell people to the star was just turning up the ringer like just that alone with the, uh, the sound always the start with the ringer off yeah that's, that's i feel like you can do like ringer. immediately yeah. immediately right Except yeah, for like, okay, like my mom, my mom's ringer, my mom's ringer is on. She's 78. She's not like, I'm getting texts all day. If you're in that where there's constant sound stimulation that then leads to visual overstimulation, find a way, find that domino that keeps the one that knocks it down. Usually, yeah, the ringer off. I also think it's very important to pick times that we change the energy, the atmosphere of our home. You know, for instance, we live in Aristotle. So... We have mostly fluorescent lights here and the obnoxious white hospital lights, you know, that's, it's slowly changing. Whenever the sun is beginning to get towards the Shkia, I have filters on my computer that change the lighting. We also change the lighting in our home. The fluorescent lights are off. If they're fluorescent, they're the yellow light. Um, so we're trying to cue the melatonin and melatonin is the yin and yang of cortisol. If melatonin is increasing, you can sleep, but cortisol has got to go down. In the morning, melatonin's got to go down, cortisol can go up and you get ready to go to the bus stop or whatever. So at night, we do, we change the lighting. We, uh, I just make it quieter in our home, you know, and it begins obviously with the lighting, but we have a commitment that if we're going to sleep at a certain time, then it's just human interaction that we're, that we're seeking. And through as much, you know, physical and or real contact um, with people as possible, and I think it's a really good place to start. Even if people say, all right, everybody, we're going to, we're going to wire down 20 minutes before we go to sleep. So many people are on their phone and they're, you know, they're, it's there when they go to sleep. It's there when they wake up. 
and if they're if they have to get up in the middle of the night and go to the bathroom there is nothing worse than looking at your phone in the middle of a sleep cycle if you could just go to the bathroom and go to you know pee and come back you fall back asleep you look at your phone probably not i mean not everybody but so there are these little things which are huge because the cumulative effect of them in terms of a technological presence in our lives um, is adding way more than people even recognize okay so tech oh, I so minimize there. tech and then was your phone tech especially and if you use it for all kinds of things like your like some people i know use it for music as they fall asleep maybe you should get a different device so that it's not the phone so that it doesn't have the temptation of the phone part that's right so i tell people if they're going to do their calm app or something like that do it on an ipad something that they don't receive emails um there there are definitely ways to do it you can do it on an mp3 and record four or five things that you love and rotate them around the month as well um our you know clocks it's nice if they don't have lights on them you know, there's a lot i would say probably some of the best people to listen to are either matthew walker andrew huberman has a, I don't know if you know who he is neuroscientist they give tons of recommendations like and they basically start here just powering down and finding a creative exchange you know something that's like a, not exchange um i want to say alternative, alternative. yes Yes. <laughs> then let's go to another question that some people have. And when they're stressed, they feel like they don't have enough energy. So they think that if they eat, they'll get the energy or they, they can't concentrate. So they think that they, maybe if they got a little bit more something and everyone has different things that they think they have in their system. So right. is that true? And what can we do instead? I would say for some people it is and some people it won't be. So the person who has true hunger, who has ignored it and or not nourished themselves could indeed be tired because or agitated because they've just not had food. You know, we do have to fuel ourselves. That's a whole other conversation, obviously, what we're going to fuel ourselves with. But um, I would say that if people wanted to start one place, it's really how we're fueling our electrolytes because our neurological activity requires a certain level of minerals, particularly salt. And some salt has two minerals. Some salt has 74 minerals. White table salt made in the lab has sodium and chloride. Pink salt has 74, I think the spread is 74 minerals. So we need a lot of activity for our brain, our neurological transfer. So sometimes it's hydration first. And I always tell my patients, check in with what you're hungry for. So food can, it could, if somebody does have true hunger, yeah, they must feed themselves. We have to nourish ourselves and feed ourselves as well as we fast ourselves. And a lot of people are trying to push through and what they get is some adrenal energy. And so 10 years ago, five years ago, even in the same person who let's say hasn't gone through menopause is basically in the same um demographic uh five years ago they may have had enough adrenal reserves because they didn't have so much overstimulation okay and a little bit of salt and a little bit of things could have gotten them into a new place like within 10 or 15 minutes okay so um i think it really has to be it has to be more customized in terms of is that person truly hungry and if they are then clearly food is or nourishment is is a big one. Now, people often will eat to try to get energy that is gone on a daily basis. That's not, it's, it's, that person has probably got some, what we would like to call adrenal dysregulation. It's not fatigue, 
that organ itself clinically doesn't become fatigued as an organism does. So we call it adrenal dysfunction or dysregulation. So many people are exhausted all the time. Um, most people will feel this dip between 2 to 5 p.m., the late afternoon slump. Um, I do believe if you looked at the statistics for vending machines, it's probably when they make the most money. Interesting. Caffeine, salt, and sugar. People are trying to stimulate their adrenal glands. Now, if you look in most cultures that are still abiding by this, um, there's siesta. Even in Meisharim, it's closed at 2 o'clock for many stores. Um, it's closed in January, too. It's not about the heat. It's not about the heat. It's not because it's so hot because then it wouldn't be year-round. Who wants to lose business? It's because we have a natural circadian rhythm that naturally dips down in the late afternoon, which is where we're supposed to rest. And it doesn't mean you nap from two to five. It means somewhere between the two to five window in daylight true time. Okay, I have to do the little adjustment, but somewhere in there, we need to power down so that we can dip and then rise back up for the last cortisol push at the end of the day. That's supposed to be around dinner time, family time, a lot of engagement, and then it starts to fall again. It's natural. We all, we all, you know, our life could, should, and, and was in this way. So I think most people, they may not just be eating. They may be caffeinating or they may be looking for salty crunchy to get enough salt for the electrolytes to get to their brain so that they can get some real good electrical conductivity. So the best thing to do is A, always, always, if you can, build in some sort of a rest. Now, even if you can't get horizontal, closing your eyes for three minutes before, let's say, someone's children come home at two or in the afternoon, or sitting to pick up a carpool instead of doing that last text, just, just rewiring for literally a minute or two. It makes a huge difference. And every time I can sell one of my patients on it, because it's free, People, it's it's just so obvious that it makes it makes a difference, a huge difference. And then people will recognize I didn't have true hunger. I either had true anxiety, true exhaustion, true frustration, but it wasn't indeed the need for food. So when we're saying two to five, we're saying sometime in the two to five, not for the whole three hours of two to five. Right. No, it's like anywhere. If you could hop around so ten minutes anywhere between two to five. And if it's five thirty and you're like, Oh, I missed it, you didn't miss it, close your eyes. Now, I will say this, napping, if you can nap, is fabulous. Um, there's a lot of research to say that if you nap for somewhere under about 25 minutes, 25, 30 max, in all likelihood, you will not disturb that night's sleep cycle. Somebody who takes an hour and a half nap, unless they truly have adrenal dysregulation and that person's on a recuperation program, um, if somebody naps for like a good hour, whether they're 30 or 50, it might tip off a little insomnia that night. So I often give patients a assignment, which is set two alarms. Yes, it's on your phone, but so that you can go into that deep, deep nap space without being concerned that you won't wake up or that you'll sleep into something that's gonna throw off the sleep cycle. You set one or two alarms and you go into this just like deep space nine, even if you're not sleeping. And I, I have had this, I have a, it's called, I, you know, it's sleep training. Like everyone sleep trains their babies. I sleep train adults all the time. I tell them I'm doing a sleep training program. So I had to sleep train myself. I couldn't nap. So um, if somebody can be convinced, you know, to just try this out for a week, they will see a substantial difference in their energy levels because it's cumulative. 
one little nap one day won't fix that. It's usually cumulative, meaning they'll, they're fixing a 24 hour sleep and rest cycle. So if you do like a half hour nap here and there, it's also helpful. But when someone like I've had this experience where I don't actually nap or maybe the last two minutes, I'm like, oh, I think I just fell asleep. It doesn't matter if you don't fall asleep and it doesn't matter how long you fall asleep for. It's the entire process of lowering the cortisol to the extent that you actually would fall asleep. It's that entire process, whether it's restorative yoga, particular breath work, meditation. But what we're doing is actively lowering the cortisol at the time it's supposed to lower. And so then it'll rain when we need it. People who are working are not going to be able to get horizontal, or maybe they can. There are some sleep pods in some um, pools, right? People could also kick back their chair and put a box under their feet at their desk. There's all kinds of creative ways. Exactly. They don't have to get totally horizontal, but from the spectrum of totally horizontal to anything like closing your eyes and just not listening to those three extra messages right before the meeting, anywhere on that spectrum is an improvement. And again, if you think about the freezer, it's cumulative. So every little bit does count and does help. So, so let's go back to the salt and the electrolytes. I think it's so, so important. So where can we get that salt? Like what are foods that we could be eating or should put salt into our water or like what is that? I mean, that being said, anybody that's got high blood pressure obviously has to check in with their doctor and, and any other medical situations. But um, most people that have anything that they get dizzy while they're bending and then standing, it's called orthostatic hypotension. I had it for years. I still have it a little bit. It's all adrenal dysregulation. So it's all salt because what happens is the kidney is here. This little adrenal, it's like the size of a walnut is on top. If you send a bunch of salt and water, the kidney has to squeeze and it pushes up into the adrenals and it stimulates it a little bit. This is why people love salty foods also. If you do a little bit all day as you're supposed to, you'll get this really level kind of adrenal function. So I think it's better to hydrate with electrolytes and salt our food, you know, um, to taste. But most, you know, the, the no salt movement um, is kind of a bad idea. Uh, I thankfully went to this very, very forward thinking out of the box, but very Western pharmacist 20 plus, this is 26 years ago. And she did a hair analysis and she said, you must have digestive issues. I was like, I do. And she said, because you don't have enough hydrochloric acid, are you doing really low salt? And I was like, yeah, like I work at a health food store. Even the blue corn chips didn't have salt back then. Like that should never happen. Blue corn chips, first of all, should have salt because they're gross when they do it. Um, but everyone was doing low salt, no salt. And what you came up with was this, this bad myth, basically. We, should, we need to regulate, but to cut it out entirely is trying to put a Band-Aid on something that's not the real root. And without enough salt, most people don't have good adrenals. So just add a little bit here and there, but more importantly is to have it in our foods. It's really helpful. A lot of people do naturally fast in the morning. Perhaps they don't have that um, true hunger or actually they feel hungry, but they're actually not hungry. It's their blood pressure hasn't acclimated and risen up for the day. And this often happens in yoga when I used to teach and people would often say like, what do I eat before? Because I'm hungry, but I don't come with a lot of food in my stomach. It doesn't feel good. And um, I would give people a recommendation, just start with some lemon and salt, pink salt in your water and see if you were really hungry. And they'd be like, oh my gosh, I wasn't really hungry. 
because the dizziness in the head was really blood pressure related, low blood pressure. And it, can, it changes throughout the day. So most people, if they start in the morning with some electrolyte tablets, or there's a company I use that's called Trace Minerals, it's out of Utah, um, just a few drops here and there in your water, your tea, cumulatively throughout the day, people will feel much better and they will at least be able to distinguish between the hunger signal that's true hunger or needing electrolyte balance. So I would so, say add salt till you like it. Okay. So if people had like an eating like a program of how much they eat, like so they have a breakfast and they have their lunch and I don't know what you said about snacks that shouldn't have ever come to it. So, so let's terrible. just go with that. So we have breakfast, lunch, dinner. What, and they should be able to get all of their electrolytes and they should be able to get all of their salt or is it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it depends on the person. If it's somebody who has a, an adrenal dysregulation like I had and most people have, um, our salt is really low. We actually need higher amounts of salt. Um, I would say the first thing is to change your form of salt from white table salt, which is made in a laboratory and just has two minerals, sodium and chloride, um, to getting pink salt or gray salt, at least change the salt so you up the mineral profile, like a lot, you get way more of a mineral spread. Pink salt is great. Like the Himalayan pink salt? Himalayan or Celtic is gonna be your gray salt. There's, you're gonna see all kinds of new salts coming, but pink Himalayan salt is the easiest, the most common, it's pretty much in every grocery store. You don't need the chunky coarse salt. There's nothing about it that's more helpful. You get the fine ground and just replace it in your salt shakers. Just replace your salt. Right there, you're gonna get a, a very, a much wider mineral distribution. So. And sea salt? That is sea salt. Okay, so the sea salt that they sell. When you in, mean Celtic, there's Celtic sea salt, there's there's sea salt from the white uh, sea salt. Like the white sea salt that they're selling. So if it's really from Yamamelach, then it is going to have more minerals. And I believe there's like 32 of them. But you got to check because they could have stripped it and just sold you some stuff. I would just go get pink Himalayan sea salt. We are certainly not short of salt here over in the Dead Sea. Um, but you got to watch it and just see what they're marketing. You know, like Dead Sea products that you could get at a kiosk in the mall have been around for a long time. People will find a way to cheapen them so just just check it okay so so just replace the salt easy like that i think that's an easy start and i do also believe that if you're going to work out you're going to exercise in the morning you are much better off to start to check that you've had electrolytes and again there's a gazillion electrolyte powders that have ashgacha that are flavored with stevia instead of aspartame and you know the kind of thing that people run out to get arab yom kippur Arab, Arab Yom Kippur. Those people should be drinking daily. Um, there's one that I use, which is this, this Trace Minerals company, and they have these, they usually come in a little canister, and they're like a little wafer, usually about somewhere between eight to 10 to 12 of them, and they're to go, on the go. You just plop one in your water bottle, and you get a little effervescent, and then you've got a whole mineral spread. So start at least with that in the morning. And what people will often find is, just from that piece of information that they may not be so hungry that if they don't have this this um, sign or symptom of hunger for most people, it's gonna be feeling like a little woozy. 
they may realize that they aren't actually hungry. Their, their blood pressure is low, but if you're in the safe range and you know, who's getting their, no, most people are not getting their blood pressure tested at a doctor's office unless they come with a symptom. Most people don't know they're walking around with kind of low blood pressure. So if you start in the morning, then you can see how it goes throughout the day. And what about the sugar cravings in the middle of the day? Is, what do you say to that? What can we do? So I, okay, so sugar cravings, and this is where I'll talk about snacks. And when I said this, you know, snacks were really, um, it was all gimmick, you know, snack wells, 100 calorie packs and eating every few hours to stoke the metabolism. That theory came out of a, a great scientific theory, but when the rubber hits the road, it's not true. Um, we were trying to do the whole calorie in, calorie out, and um, I would say like this, for most people, snacking, first of all, you don't metabolize more. If you eat protein, pure protein, you do metabolize about 30% of the caloric intake, okay? But people thought it was everything. Like, if you eat, you'll just burn more calories. It'll make your metabolism work better. It doesn't. It actually doesn't. That was a theory that came out in the late 60s and the 70s. They monetized it through snack wells and 100-calorie packs in the late 80s. And then it flopped, and it's our demographic that went through all of it. That was our prepubescence through our puberty into our menopause. Got it? So this, this is, wasn't what life was like in the 50s. You didn't see all these women falling apart. Some of them did, but that was for different reasons. But insulin is constantly being secreted. So if you eat at 9 o'clock, then you have a snack at 11 o'clock, then you eat lunch at 1 o'clock, then you have a snack at 3 o'clock. And of course, it depends. If the snack is a hard-boiled egg, no, it's not touching your insulin. But most people are snacking on something. So you have basically a window. Let's go from 9 o'clock till about 9 o'clock at night. That nine o'clock at night probably takes till about two in the morning, three in the morning to fall. So people's insulin levels are elevated usually for about 19 or 18, and if you're, if you're good. But most people, about 22 hours of the day, they spend with the insulin creeping up or already up, not able to burn fat. Okay, now, I, of course, you see people that snack and they're fine. There's a lot of other factors. I'm giving like the the uh, nutshell version that for most people this is going to be a hiccup how they've modified the rest of their lives and made their their composition still feel well or be well is is each person's thing but for most people this is why you see this trend and that's for males and and for females so that's for the snacking we should have meals perhaps we need even mini meals but snacking also just like when we spoke about the term fat loss versus weight loss snacking brings in an entirely different group of foods. It just does. Most people's hashkafa around the actual food that they're gonna eat will shift when the term snack is used. That becomes chips, that becomes quick grabbing goes, that becomes usually foods that aren't as nourishing anyway. So, you know, even if it was a smaller amount of food, it often changes its category of nutrient density. So that's also why the term snack is a little bit tricky, I think, for people. What can we do about those cravings, part. though, for someone of sugar? How they shift from those cravings to a healthier choice of foods? Okay, so there's a few things. First of all, if you're going to take a woman who's 30 or 40 pounds overweight, let's say she's, because let's do some specific examples. A woman who has got a lean body composition and always has, whether it's from nature or nurture, her genetics, her lifestyle, whatever it is, 
if she arrives at the age of 40, okay, and she wants to make modifications, they're going to be really different than the woman who's 30 or 40 pounds overweight. I'm just going to leave the term there. Um, that woman perhaps has thyroid dysregulation issues, adrenal issues. If, if they're, We're talking about 40. I'm leaving 40-year-old women, okay? Because if we creep into the 48, 49-year-olds, they could be perimenopausal. And it's estrogen dominance. And then you just you have to fix the underlying hormones. But if it's a regular woman who's, you know, in her early 40s, the first thing to do is add protein. Okay, and I'm giving you the, the nutshell versions. Obviously, I coach women on this daily. I do a fasting course. I work a lot with fasting. If it's done well, it is exactly what we're designed to do. But the first thing to do is add protein. And this term, I would not term it, it's like, it's a myth that comes out there sometimes, which is people shouldn't eat too much protein. You can eat too much protein and it becomes unhealthy. People are eating too much protein. I don't know who that's talking about. Protein is expensive. And quinoa is not protein. And almonds are not protein. They have protein in them. But two tablespoons of almond nut butter has 16 grams of fat and maybe two to four grams of protein. That's not a serving of protein. That's a serving of fat and fiber. And hey, there's some protein in there. But you can chew your fingernails too. They have as much protein. Okay? So... Getting pure protein um, into our lives is a luxury. It is, um, it is not easy to do, actually, for, for women, especially, to get their protein requirements. So an easy thing to do, if I can give people a takeaway here, is to look at your plate. Plate it. You've heard this term. You have to plate it. You visually plate it. You actually physically plate it. Whatever it is, get your plate in view. And if you add 20 to 30 grams of protein, which is, let's maybe, four ounces of white chicken breast, I'm not talking about sauce or not. I'm not talking about schnitzel or not. I'm just talking about the actual white meat um, or, you know, four or so ounces of salmon. If we add a protein component to our meal and we strive to finish that component and or also take the first few bites of the protein, which does all kinds of signaling, by the way, it does matter. If you don't do it, no big deal. But you start a meal and you take a few bites of the chicken and you chew it and you digest it. Like Zyam Inch. I'm not talking about eating like 2023. Like Zyam Inch. Sit down and take a few bites. It actually, it actually starts some real signaling of satiety. Did you so say if you want lower sugar? Start like having the first four bites of your meal with protein. Is that what I understood? That's so Yeah, cool. have a few bites. Literally, it sends all kinds of signaling. When we, you know, like by the Hasidim, there's a minute to eat the fish at least by Friday night, you know? There's so much enzymatic activity that happens by just putting our fingers in our... There are all kinds of wild stuff we're set up to do. And yes, eating some protein in the first few bites can start some signaling. Different enzymes come out in the throat and the stomach. The brain, like, when you smell food and your mouth is watering, that's enzymes. So that's enzymes shooting shooting out so all these things are happening we're built we're built to do it don't it's start with salad start with fish i would start with a few bites of your protein but whatever if you, the other thing is don't be nuts my thing okay. if you listen to my if videos no difference, like, then... don't be nuts right it's like okay but if you're like i really want that salad take the bite of lettuce first it's not gamina but yeah it actually matters and i'll tell you the other reason if you start with one thing you're probably going to have a few more bites of it. It entices us to eat more of this particular thing. And most people will eat or not eat enough of or not have enough space in their belly for the protein requirements we have. 
we have upon us protein requirements, okay? Um, so if you start with and or just start including 20 to 30 grams of protein at like three times a day, it sounds like a lot for a lot of people. Within literally 72 hours, sugar cravings should diminish. Wow. It's impossible not to. What about protein to? bars, which is not really real food, but it has a lot of protein? Could be. Protein bars could be total garbage or fantastic, and they've come a long way. Um, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and I'll give a great example. So this is a granola bar I'm going to talk about, but um, it has some protein. There's a company called Monk, which I use them often. The sweetener is allulose, which is actually processed in the bladder and kidneys mostly, and it's it's supposed to actually be building gut bacteria. You'll, we can't get an erythrocerol, but I have all my patients order it on iHerb. We get everything with allulose. We do different sweeteners, but that's that's a primary one. This monk bar has four bars, same amount of money as Sun Valley. Sun Valley put out a, a protein bar, okay? Four bars, same cost, same ounces, same everything, except for the ingredients on the monk bars are about seven or eight, and they're all English. Sun Valley is garbage it is so many chem chemicals you can't even get through the list it's soy protein those are wretched those and most protein bars are going to be not great but there are quite a few that have come along or have stayed in the game um, that are excellent and they are mini meals so i like to use the term mini meal instead of snack a lot of people yeah because a lot of people are actually not really snacking it's just like they don't have the digestive capacity to feel nourished by one meal so they have to eat a few hours later and that's also where snacking comes out of comes from a real disrepair in our guts and like if you're hungry you're hungry you gotta eat you know um so what i would say is protein bars can be excellent most of them won't be but quest is a halfway decent company there's ones that I use, they're called No Cow, and they're a pea protein. They're high quality. It's allulose and erythritol. They are digestively friendly, and they are 22 grams of protein of, of pure vegan protein, which means you have a much better chance at it being clean and hormone-free. Um, so I do think that most of my patients do eat protein bars and have protein shakes in their lives. But I give them the guidance as to which ones... Are there yeah, ingredients to look as for, few like... as possible. Okay. But you want as few are... as possible. And then you've got your you've got your your parv or your dairy. And your dairy is going to be mostly your your whey proteins or your casein. Um, I would say the biggest thing to look at is the sweeteners, honestly, because most protein powders, frankly, are gonna be low to no sugar. Because I don't care if you're like a really, I don't know, if you're living in Mayashari or if you're a bodybuilder who's living in New Zealand none of them want sugar right. everyone caught up by now so what you'll find in many protein powders is really low quality non-nutritive sweeteners in the form of aspartame ascoflame k sucralose is not great but it's not horrible but it will after months like it will break down gut bacteria in an unhealthy way but there's a couple like quest uses a little sucralose sometimes i start people on that because it's a good bridge um, but you know, I, I, important to have protein. It's easier to just start with usually an animal based, um, unless it's a protein bar. Most people are going to have a much higher success getting off sugar when they integrate protein. And I always tell people this, like 
don't, if you have, like, think of your health or any change that you're going to make, whether it's coming off of um, SSRI antidepressant or whatever it is, it's like a three-legged stool. If you take a leg out, whether it's sugar or Valium, you're going to fall right over. You got to put something in as you're removing the one bad leg. Okay, so if you're removing sugar, put in protein or it's going to be rough. And most people, in terms of our, our humanity, want a little sweet. And it's not that God was like, here, you'll never have sweets on the planet. God made herbs that are a thousand times sweeter. And God made our tongue and the tip of the taste bud, you know, the taste buds on the tip of the tongue where the sweet sensors are. It rings a thousand times louder for stevia. And when I was working in a health food store at the beginning of, of my journey in a health food store, was like, what, 29 years ago? Stevia was only in capsules in, in the aisle for herbs. You know what it was? It's a blood sugar regulator. Mm. How perfect is that? God did that. That's really obvious. We're not supposed to just not have sweets. We're supposed to find the right kinds. Like we need five flavors. We need salty. We need pungent. We need, you know, we need all of them. It's a matter of finding the right ones. Mm -hmm. And so I always tell people find it because people will set themselves up to fall all the time with, with the best of intentions. But um, we have a lot of socio and emotional connections to our food that if we undermine them, they'll come back in some other way. And most people need sweets for whatever reason. If they're going to kibitz with their kids on Friday night and kids have cookies. And the, a woman's not necessarily going to sit there eating celery and feel like it's geschmack. She's just not. Most of my patients anyway won't. So I would say start with protein, first of all, because it levels the blood sugar and it gives satiety. So most people are craving sugar because they're having a blood sugar crash. And that's where you start is why is it crashing? So protein, we saw the protein bars, which is easier and convenient. And the shakes, which are, if you buy them, they're, they're made of, you have to actually make them like the organ protein powder what are your thoughts uh i like organ it's a little bit more sugar than i would put most of my patients on and this is the thing if someone's really trying to get sugar out of their life they, they just rip the band-aid off okay um we can go through a lot of biochemical changes in seven to ten days just like and, and i tell my patients i do a reset with them it's not a lifetime program and they shouldn't when my patients are like i'm gonna do this forever like, don't do that i don't allow you to then you won't be my patient there are certain things that we can use as a therapeutic but and it's just like, yeah, I was going to say just, you know, just like an antibiotic, like you're not going to eat just protein and fat, but if you want to get the blood sugar back to a baseline, you must remove the sugar. And people are like, but dates are healthy. I'm not talking about healthy. Is it for the goal? If our goal is to get off of sugar, then it requires some sort of intervention for most people above the age of 19 or 20. It's, it, it just does. And it's not a lifetime, but it, it is going to require, and this is where I see the biggest stumbling block for almost every woman. She's like, but I only have like two or three dates. And I have like, it is blood sugar spiking every time. So all you have to do is mitigate the blood sugar spike, flatline the insulin for a few days, and we have an entirely different response. People could at that point just never crave sweets again. And it blows my mind because no matter how obese or how like structurally where they want to be, I start with a patient after 72 hours, they all have the same experience unless they're a type one diabetic and don't have a pancreas 
we're all the same. So as far as natural foods for protein, eggs, how many eggs? (laughs) Okay, so protein and eggs. If you're going to get a large egg, it's about seven grams of protein for the egg white. Okay, so most of they like make an omelet. And if you're trying to, you can plop the egg whites, excuse me, the egg yolks out. You guys in America can use egg beaters, whatever you want. Um, But you're going to get about seven grams of protein to a medium slash large egg. So and that's good three eggs. eggs easy. You have to get to the 20, it's three eggs. Yeah, sure. Oh, easily eat three eggs. I never got on train that the eggs are bad train. When I started working at a health food store, my first mentor just whispered in my ear. I think it was like the second day she was like, anyone tells you eggs are bad, don't listen to them. So I feel like I got in right under the wire. And what we know is that eggs are just like my, my first acupuncture. She said, why would anyone take an egg yolk out? An egg is the most perfect food God ever gave us. It's a being that could be another being, you know? Um, I think eggs are wonderful. If people have cholesterol issues, it's an entirely different uh, conversation, A. B, eggs are not why people have high cholesterol. They're definitely not the primary reason or the secondary or tertiary reason. So, oh, sometimes the female mania. If there's always a genetic component and then our cholesterol fluctuations, cholesterol, estrol, it's estrogen. It is the primary building block of all sex hormones. So if a woman goes through menopause and her hormones are dipping and her cholesterol doesn't rise up a bit, she's not going to have a great menopause. It's supposed to go up a little bit in the perimenopause years and for men also. So big conversation, we'll put that politely aside and I will just say, everyone talk to your doctor. Yeah, and I think we'll end with the final question because there's so many questions. What about fruit for sugar? I know. What about fruit and so, sugar? So fruits. Here's the most interesting thing, and I and I think this is a conundrum people have been in since since trying to change a Snickers at night for dates is wonderful. A is a gift. Like, of course, it's a good idea. But here's the deal: fruit sugar, fructose, whether it's high fructose corn syrup or the fructose that comes in a cantaloupe has to go through the liver to be processed, okay? It only has a four to five hour lifespan, so to speak, where it has to be used for energy or it will be stored. So fruit sugar, when people are eating an excess of fruit at night because they wanted a dessert, most people are storing all of that sugar as fat. Sugar that comes in the form of sucrose or galactose or any of the other sugars Some of them hang out in the muscle for 12 to 14 hours till you work out the next day. Some of them, you know, there's all kinds of wonderful bypasses, but fruit sugar needs to be used. So if you're going to eat it, you should have some activity. That's And I will take out of that. I hate to take them out because they're so sweet, but berries, berries are really different. Of course, it's fruit sugar, but berries, as far as the actual sugar, the fructose that's actually contained in most berries, we're going to have blueberries be the top, strawberries second, raspberries. All your berries have such a low glycemic, low sugar load that it's not that big of a deal. But if you sit there having a big bowl of mango, banana, and pineapple, which are your highest sugar tropical fruits, you better be going on a run or that's gonna end up on your hips, thighs, or whatever the back of your freezer is that you put the stuff in first and it comes off last. Oh, every woman has a different back of the freezer. We used to say that one in personal training. You know, my mom would say, oh, I love a blueberry muffin. Put it right here. (laughs) <laughs> put it right you now like 
So fruit sugar is tricky there. And this I see as people's really good hearted intentions and they end up gaining weight from having a lot of fruit as dessert or fruit in excess. And this is what you will know will bring it around. Most common item of a healthy person when they're gonna snack is a fruit. So they've got vegetables? a little insulin. What? How about vegetables at night? Like a good Always fruit. good. Morning, night, day, salty, crunchy, this and that, and you can do anything with them. But it is much better if you're going to have a snack in your life to have some red pepper and dip it in cottage cheese, or just have some red pepper and celery, maybe dip it in a little almond nut butter. Having a big peach and then sitting back at your computer without much movement at all means that fruit sugar is going to go to the liver and say, nothing to do, I'll go to the hips. See you in a few years. And it just sits there, hangs out. <laughs> so it's a lot of, a lot of the food combining is important. And we, you know, we learn little bits along the way. I've learned, you know, little bits here and there, lots of bits. Um, but, you know, if you look and I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at this because I know we're going to close up soon. When you look in the medicinal traditions or the food, I'll put food, I'm going to put food in, in, in as medicinal tr tradition. Um, we had places and spaces for all these foods and it worked by and large it worked now you can look at the egyptians and truly they weren't well they had a lot of inflammatory issues that was when we went full grain that was the first time humans went full grain and you can there's so much research about it um because their bodies were preserved well so we know what was going on um it is just it would be much easier to go higher proteins and vegetables and of course of course, you know, halakhically permissible and as clean as we can get it, keeping kosher, um, is definitely a much better way to go. And people just feel better. But I will say this, without ripping the Band-Aid off and like really making a plausible program to come off of sugar, people spend years really frustrated with something not working because they just didn't get some of the basic science that was already there in the traditions. So what so. I found myself is like, I weaned myself off sugar. So the first few times, like the coffee, okay, I have to wean myself off coffee, but my coffee went black and the first few times it was kind of bitter, but I've, I've done it. And now I can drink plain black coffee, no sugar, no milk, just plain black coffee, Turkish coffee. The first few times it was a little bitter, but I knew that I wanted to get on the other side of this sweet coffee. Right. And, it, and I'll it, say for people that are listening, I'll never do that. You and I are different sisters. I want my sweeteners, I want my chips, I want my whatever. So I have found great machlifim, like I'll use allulose. I don't want coffee, I wasn't a coffee drinker until I was like a later adult anyway. I want it sweet, I want a little bit of milk or a cream, and there are ways to do that and elevate its nutritional status without touching the insulin. And so people should know there's always solutions and options because there'll always be people like me and people stark like you that are going to eat drink a Turkish coffee. Okay, maybe if I like made myself, but if I know there's an option, I'll take it. And, and there's lots of them. My point is that we can try different things. We could figure it out. And if we wanted something, then we could get there. Yes. Or, or try another alternative if like two, three days, you just can't do it, then go for something else. You don't have to. I mean, right. I, it works for me and it doesn't work for a lot of people right. I know, but the idea of I wanted, to <laughs> not, I wanted to be able to have a coffee. No, that's right. Wherever. So I didn't want to have any milk in it. So that worked for me. But my point is that we could try right. things. If it, after five days, if it wouldn't work, I may have not. 
but it worked for me. I actually right. felt my taste buds a little something that I wanted to do. Yeah, and it worked. It was like check, check, check. Absolutely. For me, I can't, I can't impose it on anybody, but but that idea. <laughs> I'm just mentioning it, not recommending it, mentioning it. Right, right, right. No, I would also too, like there are times when I'm in a fasting schedule and I actually don't have cream. I don't have almond milk. I, I, I don't color the coffee at all. And I drink it just black, but you know, those days I probably am like, I think I'll just have a tea. Um, but yeah, you're right. If we have a goal and, and our bodies and our systems can be quickly trained, but the mentality to get into a particular training program I think these days comes with some good scientific efficacy. If people see like, oh, this really works, they'll try it. And this is where it comes back to expectations and outcomes. I've had many people that are like, I'm going to try to get off sugar and they minimize it and they do a little bit this day. And then the next day they do a little and they do a little bit. And it's like a slow drip of insulin. And until you flatline it, the cravings still come. So sugar is really tricky because remember, sugar is not a food. It's an additive. Fructose is a food, sucrose is a food, galactose, all these different forms, but straight up table sugar is made in the lab. It's never been something that our bodies were supposed to be acquainted with. So it's basically a very legal drug. I mean, even more so than alcohol. So our re reaction and response to it should be pretty disjointed because it's not, it's, it's not something we were built to be in relationship with. Fascinating. This whole so conversation is so fascinating. A, Absolutely. Fascinating. I learned so much. Yeah, I'd be happy to do another one, maybe maybe after Pesach. But after um, Pesach. it's fun. I love I love podcasts. It's like this is the reason that people can't really get away with too much bad stuff. I mean, there's bad stuff happening in the world, but we're we're podcasting, we're communicating, we're sharing information that would otherwise perhaps slip under the wire for the next twenty years, and it's awesome. We love that. I love being part of that. Being part of sharing important things or just yeah. interesting things or here they're valuable so i'm really excited so thank you yeah, so yes, much yes, thank you and okay. uh, just, uh, just again share your contact information so my contact is you can always look on facebook i'm michaela malki rosenfeld you can look under be well and soon you'll look under kosher kosher yoga is there my business page is there the, the website when it's launched you'll see it a lot so look for kosher yoga or be well 613 that's me everywhere. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Have a great week. Thank you too. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me in another fascinating conversation about midlife. If you'd like to reach me, Devara Krasniansky, to talk about your midlife or anything else, you can reach me at jewishmidlife at gmail.com and follow us at jewishmidlife on Instagram and Facebook and join us in our conversations on our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Jewish women talk about midlife.